you join me as we pray before we look into the Word? Father, we know that there's nothing that's going to cause our hearts to respond in awe or amazement of you unless the Holy Spirit works that in us. For Lord, uh, we oftentimes, those of us who have been around the things of God for many years, our hearts become somewhat too familiar with some of these truths, Lord, and we find ourselves uh, reducing things down to the mundane, and uh, they are so familiar that they no longer cause us to be in wonder. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to see through fresh eyes today uh, the wonder of who you are as revealed in your word. We pray also, Lord, if there might be someone here today whose heart has never really been filled with a great sense of wonder about you, who maybe comes with lots of questions, perhaps with a heart that's heavy and burdened and filled with all sorts of struggles, we pray, Lord, that they might be able to see you as you truly are, high and lifted up, and good and wonderful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1983... A famous Russian author by the name of Alexander Solzhenitsyn delivered an address in London, and these are some of the words that he included in his speech. He said, quote, more than half a century ago, now this is 1980, more than half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people in Russia offering the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen their country. Now he's quoting them. He said, men have forgotten God. That is why all this has happened. And if I were called upon to identify briefly the principal trait of the entire 20th century, here too I would be unable to find anything more precise than to repeat once again, men have forgotten God. Now, Solzhenitsyn's analysis of the fundamental trait of the 20th century, I think, is spot on. It's accurate. But I would like to broaden it out to say that his assessment also rings true of what has already unfolded here in the 21st century. That there is an atheism among us, both theoretical and a kind of practical atheism, that has run and continues to run rampant in our culture. It's not that people have stopped worshiping. Everyone is hardwired to worship someone or something. The disaster unfolding in the 21st century is the ever-increasing number of people who choose to worship creation, and they're looking for something in creation to give their uh, highest regard to and highest value placed upon those, rather than properly worshiping and cherishing and valuing the Creator. And as this generation rejects the reliable revelation of Jesus Christ in the Scriptures, they are increasingly ignorant of the true nature of God. Now this applies not only in the world in general, but also applies among many believers today in the church at large. And my intention in preaching a series of sermons that we have launched, I don't know, about 10, 11, 12 weeks ago, on the attributes of God is to set forth before us hopefully in a fresh and real and vital way, the biblical doctrine of God. Who is God? What is He like? And what are His characteristics and traits 
that we can uh, find ourselves uh, understanding him on his terms rather than as we might perceive him to be. So as we, consider, as we continue our study this morning uh, on the doctrine of the nature of God, it is my prayer that God will draw our hearts away from the weak and worthless idols that oftentimes we settle for and will cause our hearts to delight in the God who made us. And so I hope that you're finding more and more that your heart is delighting in the true and living God as we look at Him week after week in the Scriptures. This morning we're going to be looking and considering the doctrine of God regarding the goodness of God, the goodness of God. Now my first point as we look this morning will be to focus briefly on an overview of the reasons why the biblical writers celebrated God's goodness. And then secondly, my point will be to explore several concerns raised by those who question God's goodness. And there are many people who question God's goodness. And the third point I want to do, uh, look at this morning will merely uh, set forth a number of practical responses when God's goodness is applied to life. So let's look first of all then at God's goodness celebrated. There are so many passages in Scripture, and I always am frustrated at this section because I don't know how to summarize uh, which ones to pick, which ones to overlook. But over and over again, the biblical writers repeat the refrain, the Lord is good. Would you repeat that after me? Let's just say this out loud. The Lord is good. That is the theme that is repeated so many times in the Scriptures. We read it this morning in Psalm 145, verse 9. The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. Psalm 105 sets forth an important reason why God is worthy to be praised. He calls everyone to praise God and give Him thanks, and then He says, For the Lord is good, His loving kindness is everlasting, and His faithfulness to all generations. God is morally perfect. All he does is good. Listen to how the psalmist put those two concepts together about how God being good and then God does good things in Psalm 119, verse 68. God, you are good and you do good. That's a big statement. That includes a lot about God. All he does is good. Wayne Grudem offers a helpful definition, I believe it's in your notes, when he said, the goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good, and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. What a contrast with me and you, isn't it? Whereas we can say of God that he is good and all that he is and all that he does is worthy of approval. In other words, God's moral character is excellent. There's nothing defective in God. There is nothing lacking in His nature. Nothing can be added to God to improve Him or to make Him better. Now let's think of several illustrations of God's goodness provided to us in the Scriptures. One would be, obviously, in the area of creation. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Genesis chapter 1, in which we had the summary statement, after God made the heavens and the earth, we read in Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was so-so? It was uh, all right? No, he said, and it was very 
good. So creation from the beginning was very good. Now, despite the curse of sin, which we understand we're living on that side of things, we understand that sin has come and brought a curse to every form of life in the earth and also into creation itself. Nonetheless, we can still see the wonder of creation and enjoy the beauty of God's goodness manifested in the majestic mountains, the beautiful lakes, the trees, the flowers, the sunsets that we see, the stars, the animals, birds, the fish, and on and on we go. Surely we can see in all of these things there is still nonetheless evidence of God's goodness. We have a front row seat to the goodness of God on display. Another illustration of God's goodness is the abundance of gifts the abundance of gifts that God bestows upon us. Here we have in mind the verse in James chapter 1, verse 17. There the scriptures say that every good thing bestowed is from above, from coming down from the Father of lights, from the Father who created all of the heavenly stars and heavenly bodies, the, the sun, the moon, and all of the vast array of stars in the heavens. That God bestows upon us so many good gifts every day, day after day, month after month, year after year. And when Paul was in the city of Lystra in chapter 14 of Acts, he tried to summarize just a brief sampling of what kind of good gifts have these people who are not even worshipers of God, what have they received? And listen to what he says in Acts 14. He says, God gave you God did good, and he gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. What an interesting sampling of the, of, of the beginning of, the, of a long list of things that we could list of evidence of God's goodness. It's clearly seen in the fact that God bestows rain, and then we have the sunshine, and then we have this amazing process that goes on, a chemical process which I studied in biology in college. I can't tell you much about what I learned at that time, but I do remember it's very complicated. That's what I can remember about the process of photosynthesis. Energy comes in, and we have this exchange of all kinds of amazing things that happen within plants, producing chlorophyll, and from this process, we derive the benefits of food. And in the process of this food that we're able to eat, we enjoy the taste of that food, which is God giving us in the goodness of having taste buds. Thank God we can taste our food. Can you imagine eating food that was just mundane, like eating paper? I mean, just imagine how, 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 what a drudgery it would be to say, I've got to get more calories in my body. Like, Ugh, got to eat this nasty stuff that has no taste. I just have to eat it. But eating is amazing to have that kind of taste bud. My taste buds are too strong in terms of the things I like to eat. I have to eat us. I can't eat all those things anymore. But anyway, we have taste buds, and then we have the process of a digestive system that processes those things, and then we derive the nutritious benefits from that. It all is amazing, isn't it? To think of the goodness of God and how he's created and how that just goes on day after day, and we think very little of it until what? Something happens to go wrong. And then we begin to wonder about God, and we question his goodness. I'd like to also suggest to you as we need to uh, think of other things there, but I would like to move your attention just for a moment of another illustration of God's goodness in the life of Jesus Christ, his life and his teaching. 
to the rich young ruler who came up to Jesus and tried to put Jesus on the spot. And he came up with a question, and he was trying to ask Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Actually, he said, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, in responding to him in Matthew 19, said, because I don't think he really, I don't think the man thought in any way that Jesus was God. But he says, uh, Jesus says back to him, only God is good. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. In other words, the, the nature of God is he has to be good. He cannot be anything less than good or he wouldn't be God. And here is Jesus, God in human flesh, and Jesus tries to distinguish himself from other spiritual leaders who say and make many claims about how good they are and how much they care for people. Jesus says, no, listen. He says, I'm aware there are many people who are spiritual false shepherds, and they really don't put themselves at risk for those who are under their care. But he says, I am the what shepherd? I am the good shepherd. And I lay down my life for the sheep under my care. Jesus distinguished himself by speaking of himself as the good shepherd. And interestingly enough, when Paul summarized the earthly ministry of Jesus, he did so in Acts chapter 10 in this way. He says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how Jesus went about doing what? Jesus went about doing good. That was a great summary of what Jesus did with his life. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And certainly we know, in terms of another illustration of God's goodness, wouldn't we not say that the greatest demonstration of God's goodness was Jesus' death and resurrection? Now we say that because in John three seventeen we know that the, it says, God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, or to condemn the world. But that's what the world deserves. That's what we have coming to us. We have gone astray. We all have gone our own way. We've all broken the laws of God. So what we deserve is not what we're receiving from God. God, on the other hand, out of His goodness, He gives His Son. We read in John three seventeen, not to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. It is the good Son of God who laid down his life by the most unjust death, by crucifixion, in order that those who are not good, you and me, and who therefore face God's holy wrath, could be justly justified, could be justly declared right with God our judge. No wonder the Bible refers to those who proclaim the gospel as those who bring glad tidings of what? Of good things. Glad tidings of good things. That is what the gospel means. It means good news. It doesn't mean the good news of what we have to be good people before we can be accepted by God. The good news is that we who are not good people have a Savior who is good and has died for us, that we might know and enjoy eternal life in a relationship with Him as we trust in Him and repent of our sins. That's good news. The Lord is good. Let's say it again. The Lord is good.
All right, some of you are still awake. That's good. That's good. That is the greatest news, my friend. Let's look secondly at God's goodness questioned. Some people, when they hear the affirmation that God is good, they react to that and they say, wait a minute, i got a couple questions I really struggle with. One question that is found in William McDonald's book, I thought was quite true of many, the questions that they raise is this, if God is good, then why did he make the devil? Legitimate question. Well, how are we going to answer that one? Well, let's go back and remember that God created the devil originally as an angelic being who was perfect initially and from the beginning in all of his ways. Ezekiel 28 gives us an indication of that. And that this angel was a free moral agent with the power to obey or disobey God. And when Lucifer, that is this angel, chose to usurp the throne of God, he fell from heaven. We read about that in Isaiah 14. And it was not God's fault that one of his own creatures, created as good, chose to rebel against him. So I say again, let's be careful that we not minimize God's goodness by overly uh, emphasizing the evil of Satan, Satan was not originally created as an evil being. Now, other people say, well, wait a minute. I've got another question. If God is good, then why does God seem so unloving and so uncaring? Because to many people, and I'm sure some of you have had these experiences, you affirm in your mind, perhaps, that yes, God is good on some level, but then there, you say, well, I've witnessed and seen in my life that there are small children these, these weak and dependent little children become sick. and Some have died. Where is this loving God at that moment? Or what about that good person that we care so deeply about who suffers such pain and such poor health for so many years and on and on and on it goes, when there's all the while he permits various scoundrels that we know, people who live like the devil, and they enjoy good health and they enjoy wealth. How can God be good and these things go on? It's a good question. First thing I'd like to suggest to you is that such question overlooks, first of all, the gracious provision and patience of God. By judging God from a human perspective, many people base their assessment on God on human standards of what is good. And what I mean by that is that they oftentimes overlook the fact that if it were not for God's goodness, if it were not for God's patience, no human being would be alive. Sometimes we forget that in the equation. Because you remember, the soul that sins, it shall die. The fact that there is continued human life is an amazing testimony to the goodness of God. Now, having said that, the fact that any person takes another breath, we need to understand that's due to the grace of God. God waited 120 years before he destroyed the world by the flood. And during that time, Noah was preaching. It's time to repent. Now, it was also 800 years went by, during which time there was urgent 
urgent pleadings. There was preaching and warning going on from God's prophets to a belligerent and to a rebellious nation, calling them to repentance, and they refused again and again and again for 800 years, and then God finally sent Israel into captivity. But during that time, they have, in, they have enjoyed and have taken part in the blessings of God's goodness and patience. So one commentator, I think, have a very helpful way of answering this question by raising a good question or two. Rather than asking why God allows bad things to happen to seemingly good people, we should ask why God allows seemingly good things to happen to obviously bad people. We could ask, why does he not strike down many other people for their sins? Isn't the answer to the riches, isn't the answer to those questions, really, found in Romans chapter 2, and I'd like to invite you to turn there in your Bible, Romans chapter 2, page 1339 in the Pew Bible, 1,339, Romans chapter 2. Now let me just say this, uh, different translations translate into English this interesting word found in Romans 2.4. If you have a King James Bible, I believe, or New King James, it translates it goodness, uh, the word, and then what we're going to find in the New American Standard, which is the Pew Bible, you're going to find the word kindness. They all are evidence of the excellence of God, his moral excellence and goodness, his patience, all those things are built into this kind of word. Let's back up here and notice what he says. He's indicating in chapter 2, verse 1, that everyone is without excuse. And that if you're a person that condemns someone else and you're looking down on them and you say, wow, look at you, you deserve to be judged by the wrath of God. He says, you better be careful. He says, you or yourself will be judged someday and the same standards will be applied to you. Verse 3, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself... Do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? Now, verse 4 is the key verse. Do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to what? Repentance? What he's saying here is that the fact that God has not doled out and given you the justice that you deserve, but that he has shown you patience and he has shown the evidence of his goodness toward you millions and millions of times. Don't you realize that rather than think that God is just sanctioning you to go on your merry way and forget what he's all about and to live any way you want, he's saying, don't you realize that's an evidence of how you ought to cherish and treasure that and therefore you ought to repent and turn from your sins and be appreciative of God and his goodness and come to Christ. That's really what he's trying to say there. And I think it's a very helpful way of summarizing a good answer to the questions that people raise about God's goodness. Well, there are many others we could touch on, but I want to move uh, to my third point this morning because we can talk all we want about theoretical uh, objections and all sorts of things that people bat around, but I want us now to think, practically speaking, what differences it make in our life. God's goodness needs to be applied, point number three. The obvious point about God's goodness, as expressed in his withholding of judgment, leads logically then to our first application. As we meditate upon God's goodness, 
we are to increase in humility. As we meditate upon God's goodness, it is to show forth a fruit in our hearts of greater and greater humility. Paul cautions there in Romans 2, those who are so quick to judge other people and they somehow think they're going to be escaping that same judgment that they offer to others. And here in that text in Romans 2.4, Paul asks that such people are thinking lightly of the riches of God's kindness and goodness, forbearance and patience. To think lightly means what? It's cheap. It's not worth much. I don't really treasure it very much at all. And after a while, if people are not meditating upon the goodness of God and the patience of God shown to you, the moral goodness of God and, and how he has been so patient forbearing toward you when he really doesn't have to be that way, then if you think it's not worth much, then what happens? Your view of God comes down and down and down to where God is not highly valued by you at all. But on the other hand, if we consider and ponder the, the kindness and goodness of God, it's meant to lead us into repentance, to learn to start hating the way we become so obsessed with ourselves and, and we look at our, 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 our uh, attempts in which we are so proud and oftentimes think more of ourselves more highly than we should. It's clear to me that too many people underestimate the value of God's goodness. I know I do that more often than I care to admit. As a matter of fact, whenever we sin in a determined way, even though we know it's wrong, even though we've heard the alarm go off in our conscience saying, you know, you really shouldn't be doing this, but you still move toward it, I'm convinced it's because we've lost sight of the goodness of God. Think about this quote. I think it's in your bulletin there. Matthew Henry. There is in every willful sin a contempt for the goodness of God. A contempt for the goodness of God. Somehow implying that God, you're just not showing me goodness here. You don't have enough for me, so I've got to go and justify the fact that I'm going to pursue this area of sin, even though I know it to be wrong. Isn't that what the approach with Satan was toward Eve? He comes to Eve, starts asking all these questions about, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute, Eve, now, let me ask you a question. He says to Eve, he, he begins to question God's goodness. He says, God knows that today if you eat, he says, from this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Implying what? He's holding back on you giving you all these prohibitions, saying, hey, don't eat from this tree. Come, God's holding back. Look at the blessings that are out there if you just move ahead here and not get so caught up in, in God holding the, something that really should be good that you would treasure. Satan was sowing seeds of doubt about the goodness of God, and I'm convinced that's happening to us every day, every single day. In whatever area of sin you're being drawn into, that's the battle right there, my friend. Is God good? Or is he not, therefore I'm justified in walking away from him? And I would say again, going back to why we don't appreciate enough, ask yourself this question. Do I want to receive what I deserve every day? Do you want to receive what you deserve from God every day? And if the answer is no, then you need to say, 
Lord, show me again how much I need to treasure and appreciate your goodness, your patience and forbearance shown to me and teach me to repent and walk humbly before you day by day. A second application here is connected to this point is that God's goodness is to evoke in us continuous offerings of thanksgiving. Continuous offerings of thanksgiving. Psalm 107, verse 8 says, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for what? For his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Isn't it interesting that when you don't take time and you really your heart is sort of left to be on its own, isn't it true that so often we turn our hearts to say, let's take a few minutes and let's complain about what's bad about the world. I know that I've found this to be true in my own heart and I've had to ask the Lord to forgive me many times here. I find that so many good things can be going on and my mind will focus on the one thing that didn't go right. And I magnify that, I think about that, I, I repeat something common about it, and then I find myself saying, am I lost sight of all the good things that are happening around us and I have a complaining spirit in me? It's an ugly thing to happen. You can have a delicious meal served up to you and say, well, isn't there too much salt on these green beans? It's like, come on, what are, what are you doing here? And so I think for many of us, we've lost sight. So I have a quote here, uh, again, from Arthur Pink, who again has so many helpful uh, comments in his book on the, on the attributes of God. He says, gratitude, in your notes, is the return justly required from the objects of God's beneficence or of God's helpfulness, his goodness shown to you in so many benefits. Yet it is often withheld from our great benefactor simply because his goodness is so constant. In other words, it's every day and it's every moment of every day. It's so abundant that we oftentimes forget to do it, withhold it. It is lightly esteemed because it is exercised toward us in the common course of events. It is not felt because we daily experience it. The reason we don't have thankfulness is because we're so accustomed to receiving the benefits of God's goodness that we don't even, we just take it for granted. Which is so true, isn't it, all of us? We see it in our children, we see it in ourselves. Several months ago, I gave my wife a book called Thousand Gifts, and the book was written by a woman who witnessed the death of her, I believe it was sibling, on a farm in a ac terrible accident. And it affected the whole family. The whole family just worked through this grief and this loss, just sort of painted everybody into a gloomy reality of every day is, oh, this child, I'll never forget watching all that and living through that, that horrendous situation. And the point of the book was this woman says, I'm going to go out and I'm going to find something to be thankful for every day. I'm going to write about it. And so she began to find that there are a thousand things that I should just take time and, and ponder one little thing and think about it and begin to have my heart turn to really realize the goodness of God. Some of us, that's a hard work to do, isn't it? We're so busy focusing on what's not right, we, we lose sight of looking for the good things that God has done. Make it your task to do that. Maybe you need to say, every day I'm going to write down something that I see the goodness of God around me. It might be a good life discipline. No? Yes? No? Yes? Okay, yes. All right, okay. Uh, all right, let's look at another one here. Here's another one. Third one, letter C. As children of a good God, if we are indeed the children of God, we are called to imitate 
to some degree God's goodness by doing what he does, and that is do good works. In other words, we learn from texts like Ephesians 2, and I'd like you to turn there in your Bible now, Ephesians 2, page 1390, that those who are the children of God, they are to bear the fruit of God-likeness on some level, not exactly as God, but on some level. Ephesians 2.10, it talks about being saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works. So there's no boasting. We acknowledge God gives us faith. He gives us the gift of eternal life. And then notice verse 10, Ephesians 2.10, that God intends those who are saved by grace to perform deeds that are characterized by goodness. He goes on to say, verse 10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? For good works which God prepared beforehand. This is all part of God's plan. He intends for us to be characterized by a change of our heart so that what is evidenced in our lives is that they begin to see good works. Not that good works get you to God. It's the other way around. God, by His grace, draws us to Himself, gives us the free gift of eternal life, changes our hearts, and now we what? Now we show forth the fruit of His grace in good works. We should walk in these good works. Now, what does that mean? To walk in good works is another way of saying that good works are to be your everyday common experience, not something that you heroically pull off once a year on your wife's anniversary. Oh, sorry. Uh, 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 it's not mean once a month you do something that's characterized by good. and that's, that's No, he means that the pattern of your life the word walk there in Scripture often means the pattern of your everyday life is to be good works. It's interesting when you look through the New Testament, Paul gave us a picture of what these good works look like. You say, well, what are you talking about good works? You talk about uh, someone who is uh, doing something, uh, making it into Newsday, that kind of good work, you know, some heroic donating a kidney or something. Well, that, that, that's a good thing. But look at this, 1 Timothy chapter 5 Paul lists some characteristics of the widows in the church who should be put on a list of assistants within the church. And listen to what he says, a qualification. He says, those who, 1 Timothy 5, 9, have a reputation for good works. So we're talking about widows who don't have much of the world's goods, living an ordinary, just everyday life. But what is it about their life that would have them have a reputation of good works? He goes on to list. They've raised their children. They didn't abandon them. They invested in their children day by day. You mean when I take care of my children, I'm doing good works? Ding, ding, ding. Yes. You mean when I, secondly, another thing this woman, these these widows did, I extend hospitality. You mean when I open my home and I share a meal with somebody and just have a a cup of tea with them and we just talk and, and just welcome them into my, that is good works? Ding, ding, ding. Yes. Okay, you get the idea here, right? Okay, how about this? It also says that with this widow assisted those in distress. So here is she, a person who has very little of the world's goods, is able to what? Help somebody else who's having a hard time, probably by praying for them, probably by doing something practical for them, probably by saying, hey, can I help you with your children or something? I mean, these are not heroic deeds. These are small little gestures of kindness. 
And that's what God is saying. I want my people to be like that. You say, well, I can do that with people that are, you know, I'm on good terms with. But look how Jesus pushes the boundaries of what good works are to be included when he says in Luke 6 that we are to do even to those who don't like us. He says, love your enemies and do good to them. Oh, now wait a minute. I'm sorry, you've pushed the boundaries too far on that one. I'm going to be do, do good to somebody who doesn't like me? Isn't that what God does to you and me? In the midst of so much that's evil in our world, particularly in how people treat each other, Paul called on the people in Rome as believers to overcome evil by what? Protesting down on the corner, holding signs, making lots of noise, complaining about everything? No. Overcome evil with what? Good. In other words, the more good that you do, you become the channel by which God then begins to push back the evil that just continually encroaches in our world. And our challenge is to resist the tendency that many of us have. I'm one of them. The tendency is what? We become weary in doing good, right? Galatians 6. We're weary in doing good. I've done good. I'm weary now. Tired of it. Nothing seems to happen as a result of it. It seems like we do the same thing over and over again. There's weariness in doing good. Paul reminds his readers that we're to do good to all men, Galatians 6, while we have the opportunity. That's pretty broad, my friends. Particularly, he says, to unbelievers, we want to make sure that we are people who are doing good to others, even people who are on the outside of our our little close-knit Christian family. But he says, especially you've got to start with the household of faith. So good should characterize what we do with each other, but it also spills over into everybody. Looking for little gestures and acts of kindness and goodness. As we imitate our God, there's much more we can say about this, but I included a quote by John Wesley. He clearly got the principle. <laughs> There's a very helpful quote here, and you've got to fill in the blank. He says, do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, to all the people you can as long as you ever can. That's a really good challenge, isn't it? That'll work this next week if you start saying, Lord, this is my prayer. Help me to and see how God can use you as a means of bringing light to a world where there's such a lacking of goodness. The world is waiting to see the goodness of God put on display by the children of God in their good works. Let, let them see what God looks like. That he is a good God as we seek to offer our deeds which are good only because of God's grace to those around us. Letter D. God's goodness helps us to strengthen our faith during the storms of life. Now, I've noticed as I was doing a study of the various verses where we read about the goodness of God, that's an interesting thing to do. I've listed some of them in your notes there. As you read the statement that they affirm, God is good, I said, I began to ask myself, now, are they just saying that when the when, 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 the, when the waters are smooth and, and the sun's shining and, and, and everything's wonderful and, and uh, everybody's having a great day, and they, oh yeah, God's good. But I read carefully and noticed the context, the fascinating context 
of the affirmations of God's goodness, God's goodness comes in the midst of people who are facing a crisis, who are facing an opponent, an opposition of some kind, or some sort of threatening danger. And yet in the middle of it, they say, God, you're good. I'm not sure I can do that very well. I don't do that on a regular basis. But I've listed the look at Lamentations chapter 3. We're studying that on Wednesday night, by the way, the book of Lamentations. And here's Jeremiah, witnessed the horrors of seeing the city of Jerusalem destroyed and awful kinds of, of uh, damage to property and people. And he goes on to say in the middle of the book, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It's like a brilliant light shining against this back, dark, gloomy uh, backdrop uh, of the situation he was facing. Yet the Lord is good. Also Psalm 31, Psalm 86, Psalm 25, and then Nahum, a book that is uh, written by those who were struggling with the evil empire that continues to go and conquer all these lands and all these people who are trusting in God. And yet look at this, look at this awful empire coming in, wreaking havoc on them. And he affirms once again, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take, who take refuge in him. As a matter of fact, God's goodness is indeed a firm foundation to stand on and, and to build your confidence in the midst of difficulties is to hang on to the fact that he is good. Look at Romans 8.28. 8.28 of Romans. I hope you know that verse. If you don't, you should become very familiar with it. We know that God causes all things to work together for what? For good. You say, wait a minute. Does the verse say, and God causes everything to be good? No, no. He causes all things to work together to accomplish somehow good, even though the things around us are not good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, what is His purpose? Just to make life simple and easy for us? Make us self-satisfied? No. His purpose, verse 29, is that we become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is to have the character traits of what? Christ, which again is all about what? Imitating God, right? The character qualities of God. So the heartache and the loss and trials that you might be enduring, or I might have to endure someday, at the time may not seem compatible with the reality that God is good. You should know that. That when you undergo tremendous tragedy and difficulty, your mind says to you, boy, this doesn't feel very good, God. Where are you? But you're going to take this verse and you're going to say, Lord, I've got to trust in your promise here. And then from that trusting, you'll find that your confidence in that God orchestrates your life, those miserable circumstances, to accomplish short-term and ultimately eternal good that he's promised to us in Jesus Christ. You have to hang on to that. That takes faith, my friend. Faith that is built upon the revelation of scriptures, upon who God is. Is God good? Then we can trust him in this promise of Romans 8, 28, 29. If he's not good, then we just are left with what? What happens to me makes me cynical, angry, and depressed. Period. But we fight against those by hanging on to these promises in the Word of God. Then we've got one more. Final application 
regarding the goodness of God, and there are many others we could add, but I'm just going to say this. It, it deals with the area of prayer. Turn back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. 7, 11. I think you can remember that one, right? Matthew 7, 11. Every time you drink your coffee this week, may this verse come back to mind. Before we talk about this, I want to ask you a question. It'd be very interesting to do a study on what is your view of God and what is your experience in prayer? You say, well, I don't pray very often because I find it hard to sort of get my thoughts together and I find it's still sort of hard to pray to somebody I don't know and I don't see them and, and so I really pray very rarely, maybe, maybe over lunch, maybe over dinner, uh, but I really don't pray very much because I really, to tell you the truth, I'm not sure God's even listening. But if your view of God is that you are so amazed at the goodness of your Heavenly Father, and you're so inclined to understand who God truly is, it's more likely to help you have a desire to pray. Watch this in Matthew 7, verse 11. He's trying to speak to the issue of prayer. He says, verse 7, Ask, it shall be given. Seek, you shall find. Knock, it shall be opened. The one who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks will be opened. Is there a man among you when his son shall ask him for a loaf, will give him a stone? He's, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If you as a parent have your child saying, I'm hungry, Dad, I'm hungry. Here, son, chew on the stone. Now, how many of you have done that? Don't raise your hand, even if you have. Even if you have. Okay. Now, I know if you had teenagers, you say, son, eat the shelf in the refrigerator. I can't have any more food to give you. I mean, after a while, you're like, okay, you've had enough. All right. But anyway, verse 11. If he asks for a fish, which is their normal meat of the day, you're going to give him a snake? It's going to bite him and poison him? No. A human parent doesn't do that. Now watch this. If we argue from the lesser to the greater, as parents we know how to give good gifts to our children, and we are evil. Verse 11. If you then, being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is what? Give what is good to those who ask Him. Now that's the key question is, what is good based on what God says? Did you as a parent say, yes, Johnny, you may eat that entire cake in one sitting? No, we didn't say that. Yes, Johnny, you may play out in the street all you want. We know what's good. We define what's good based on our knowledge of that child and what their needs are. And so we put certain things and say, no, you cannot have that. Because that's not for your good. If we as evil can do that, how much greater is God who in his wisdom knows what's ultimately for our good and he and therefore we can trust him to say, Lord, I'm asking you for what I need. And he'll at times say, no, I'm not going to give you that. Other times he'll say, wait. Other times he'll say, yes. It's amazing how that changes our view of God and therefore draws our heart to God and we enjoy prayer. We find ourselves more inclined to have a heart turning to God in prayer. Well, I pray that, that God will take these reminders of the goodness of God. I hope that you'll see them worked out in your everyday life. It makes such a huge difference if we truly believe God's good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we celebrate today the fact that you are good. 
Surely, Lord, we've just begun. We just scratched the surface when we try to think of the many examples and evidences of your goodness. But, Lord, in the brief time we looked at them this morning, I know my heart has been convicted, and I'm sure many of us, Lord, of how we have devalued your goodness. We have cheapened it. We've become so accustomed to it, it doesn't mean much to us most of the time. And Lord, I pray that you forgive us for that. Open our eyes of our hearts to see and to become more aware of the evidence of your goodness all around us. Deliver us, Lord, from living a life of complaining, a life of criticism, fault-finding, always seeing the the glass half-empty. Lord, help us to delight our hearts in you, to be filled with thankfulness as we look around us and take note of your goodness to us and realize how patient you've been and how how you've never done wrong toward us, Lord, and, and therefore we ought to repent. So, Lord, teach us to do that. Humble us before you. And I pray, Lord, that you would turn our hearts to you when we go through those hard times. Maybe there are people here today, Lord, who are going through a very hard time. I pray that you would help them, Father, to respond to this difficulty by turning to your word and claiming what the word says and claiming the promise of the one who's made it, the promise of one who is good. And Father, help us, we pray, to have hearts that don't question you, but hearts that learn to trust you and bring our requests to you, knowing that you know what's for our good and that you're all wise. Lord, I pray if there's someone here today who has never had a heart that has responded in repentance and faith, Jesus Christ, the greatest demonstration of goodness to us, I pray that even today, Lord, they might receive Christ and trust him who bore their sin upon that cross, that they might, what, be children of God and then led into good works. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.